0: Hi, Dave Emory here. This is For the Record, program number 843, interview number 6 with Peter LaVenda about the Hitler legacy. This is being recorded on April 12th of the year 2015. And once again, it is my privilege and my pleasure to bring back to our airways Peter LaVenda, the author of, among other books, The Hitler Legacy, about which we will be speaking today. Uh, Peter, welcome back.
1: Thank you very much. Good to be here. Um,
0: before we get into the subject material, uh, as I have said in the past, uh, I the most frequent question that I get asked is, well, I believe what you say, but I feel helpless in the face of all of these horrible things. What can I do about it? And in that regard, uh, I, would, uh, I would cite the old adage, think globally, act locally and something people can do is to buy and read the Hitler legacy and tell other people about it whether on the internet or a talk show or simply private conversation uh with the uh, possible exception of John Loftus and Mark Aaron's The Secret War Against the Jews. There has never been a book with as many of the things as I talk about uh, between the covers. And also, uh, Kevin Coogan's Dreamer of the Day, Francis Parker Yaki in The Post-War Fascist International, and Martin A. Lee's The Beast Reawakens are also good ones. Uh, but that—that that is something people can do, and I want to emphatically encourage listeners. If you value the work that I've done over the decades... Go out, get this book, read it, and spread the word. And again, I have no uh, financial stake in promoting The Hitler Legacy. It is simply uh, uh, a wonderful book and a very important book. Now, Peter, in our last interview, we were talking about uh, the Dalai Lama, something of a minor modern deity, and his links both with SS people like uh, Walker Bruno Beguer, and uh, SS man and tutor and apparent U.S. intelligence operative at times, Jaime uh, Khara. We also spoke about uh, the Dalai Lama's uh, brand of Tibetan Buddhism, as a form of weaponized religion, uh, and it was used by the CIA, among others, in uh, the Cold War against uh, Communist China. Uh, It might seem a long reach for people to uh, equate the philosophy of the Dalai Lama with SS uh, operations or Cold War, covert ops, and yet, as you point out in the Hitler legacy, the particular form of Buddhism that the Dalai Lama embodied, somewhat, something that might almost be termed jihadist Buddhism, to coin the term, really adapts surprisingly well to some of the things that I've just enumerated. I wonder if you would develop that for us.
1: Uh, certainly. Um, Of course, the the Dalai Lama, uh, until recently when he stepped down from his political post, was uh, simultaneously the political leader and the spiritual leader of the country. Um, Tibet was arranged uh, along feudal lines. Um, It was uh, a kingdom that was closed off to the rest of the world. It was preserving its own, you might say, its own racial purity by being uh, that that cut off. It wasn't merely cut off because of its location, but it was a deliberate uh, position that Tibet took regarding the rest of the world. So there was some similarity in this idea of uh, a race that was separate, a religion that um, had, we might say, uh, apocalyptic overtones. The basic text that the... Uh, the Dalai Lama represents, especially in the many initiations that he's conducted around the world uh, since the 1950s, is that of the Kala Chakra Tantra. And the Kala Chakra Tantra is a very interesting text. Uh, it is more than uh, just a, a, a religious initiatory program. There's more to the Kala Chakra Tantra than that, including a section on what would happen uh, at the end of the world. The uh, the Kala Chakra Tantra. Uh, speaks of the Kalki, speaks of a king that would come out of Shambhala. Uh, Shambhala or Shambhala is the um, hidden kingdom, the mysterious, uh, invisible kingdom, uh, sort of a garden of the immortals. If you talk about it in Chinese terms, it's uh, located somewhere and nowhere. Uh, only the pure of heart can see it or enter it, uh, according to the legends. But The Kalki, at the end times, you might say, will come out of Shambhala with an an enormous army, and they will uh, put to the sword all the unbelievers. Um, The the idea that there would be a Buddhist king uh, that would be so vicious is something that probably many listeners would find appalling, since Buddhism is, uh, at least allegedly, it's a religion of nonviolence, it's a religion of peace. Uh, It's definitely not a religion of war uh and yet the this idea of a worldwide conflagration, an apocalyptic battle at the end of at the end times uh seems very alien to Buddhism and yet there it is in the heart of this particular Tantra. Um, this belief uh was so strong that it permeated not only a lot of Tibetan culture but it uh colored relations with other countries as well. To a certain extent we saw how, for instance in India um had been a British colony, as we know, uh, until the 1940s. Um, there was a Indian nationalist movement uh, among the, the Hindu believers as opposed to the Buddhist Buddhism. There was very few Buddhists left in India, but the in terms of uh, what they called Hindutva, a kind of Indian nationalist movement, um, rose up uh, to join forces with potentially Hitler had Hitler managed to cross the Suez Canal. Uh, the leader of that movement, Sudha uh, Chandras um, saw Hitler as the Kalki, saw Hitler as this leader who would come out uh, and purify the world and get rid of all of the unbelievers. Um, there was this idea that there's a connection between uh, this idea of Shambhala, the mystical hidden kingdom of the Kalachakra Tantra, and the Tula, the, uh, the mystical kingdom of the Nazis, of the Aryan uh, mythology. Teutonic paradise from which uh, the Aryan race had descended. These ideas were so consonant with each other that the Tibet expedition of 1938 was sponsored by the SS uh, to send SS officers, scientists, uh, into Tibet to make contact with Tibet and also to uh, survey the country, try to find out if any of these rumors might be true, if uh, there was any ethnographic uh, evidence to show that you know the Tibetans, for instance, descended from Tulu. Uh, that the Tibetans were Aryans. Um, all of the cranial measurements were being taken. All sorts of other information was being uh, gathered by these SS officers there in Tibet in 38, 39, um, because there was a lot of belief that these people had a lot in common. The Tibetans might have been the um, the source for the Aryan race. The Aryans may have descended first uh, to the Himalayas, to this kingdom in the in the midst of the mountains and then spread out from there across the rest of the world at some point in in ancient prehistory so there are these ideas that um, the Dalai Lama represented uh, a bastion of resistance against communism the way that the the Nazis of course uh, saw themselves as resisting communism in Europe Uh, Tibet was going to resist communism from its place in Asia Uh, remember that uh, in Asia there was very little resistance Um, to uh, communism. Uh, There was a large socialist movement taking place in India as well as a nationalist one. uh, The Japanese, of course, were extremely nationalist. Uh, The Chinese now were developing a communist movement. Uh, So having Tibet there seemed like it was a religious and political um, counterpoint to the rise of communism in Asia. We tend to forget that uh, when the West was talking about a cold war and about the threat of communism, that it wasn't only the threat of communism from Russia, but there was a threat in Asia of communism from China at the same time. And Tibet was essentially the uh, the answer uh, to some observers to uh, resisting Chinese hegemony in the region. So you had the CIA eventually um, in the early 1950s deciding it was going to help train Tibetan guerrillas, many of them were trained in the United States, in the state of Colorado. Uh, They were trained in uh, sabotage and guerrilla warfare, uh, and sent back into Tibet to uh, conduct operations against the Chinese communists from there. Uh, The Dalai Lama was promised all of the support if he would become vocal in his opposition to communism, which was not uh, difficult. The idea was the Dalai Lama had such spiritual Presence and such spiritual credibility that he could convince Buddhists and non-Buddhists alike in Asia to rise up against the communist threat, uh, not only uh, in China but in Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and other regions. So, this was a, a, a an Asian version of what the, the uh, Americans and the British intelligence were doing with uh, Nazis in Europe to fight the Soviet Union. They were using Tibetans, Tibetan spiritual leaders like the Dalai Lama, but also Tibetan guerrilla forces to fight communism in Asia. Uh, And it was believed that there was a lot in common. Uh, We have many photographs showing the Dalai Lama uh, with such uh, war criminals, basically, as Bruno Beger, whom we, we mentioned, an anthropologist, who was on the SS Tibet expedition of 1938, who always spoke and wrote fondly of his time in Tibet Who was himself a war criminal, responsible for the deaths of over over 80 um, prisoners in the camps that he was uh, selecting for his uh, collection of human skeletal material for a museum showing uh, uh, various human racial types and ethnographic types. Uh, Here was a person who you know was was a war criminal without any doubt, and yet he was a friend of the Dalai Lama and. was shown in photographs with him on numerous uh, occasions, as was Heinrich Harrer, of course, whom we mentioned previously as well. The famous mountain climber, who became a, uh, a tutor to the young Dalai Lama, and who was also involved in espionage activity in Tibet and then later uh, in other parts of the world for Western governments against communists. Um, the, the list is very long. There is a uh, there's a kind of strange association between the leader of Tibet, leader of Tibetan Buddhism, and various Nazis. There is no such relationship that I can find between the Dalai Lama and, let's say, left-wing uh, socialist type leaders or anything like that. The the um, relationship seems to be forged with those of the right. Um, it may be because of the Dalai Lama's obvious uh, stand against communism, because his country was invaded by China in 1950, and then again he had to flee uh, in the later 50s to get into northern India from where he's uh, since set up his operation. So we're talking about a man who is at the same time political and spiritual leader of his people. Without putting too fine a point on it, of course, this was uh, Hitler's relationship to Germany, his relationship to the Third Reich, he was the political leader, obviously, the military leader as well, and uh, at the same time he represented an ideology that was uh, striving for purity, for anti-communism, of course anti-Semitism, and struggling to maintain a kind of um, uh, ideological and racial purity for his people. He was a figurehead that way. I'm not saying the Dalai Lama is Hitler. Uh, Obviously the Tibetans had nothing uh, to do with the death camps as far as we know. Um, Not directly at any rate. We had uh, Germans who visited Tibet who did become involved in the death camps, but that's guilt by association in that case. But at the same time, we cannot uh, avoid the fact that the Dalai Lama's relationships are questionable when it comes to the Third Reich. I have reviewed many interviews uh, and writings of the Dalai Lama. Uh, every time the Holocaust is brought up, the Dalai Lama begs off saying, well, he didn't know anything about that. He was too young at the time, uh, which begs the question, well, you're not too young now. You know What is your response? And his response has always been very ambiguous when it comes to the Third Reich when it comes to Nazism when it comes to those friends of his who were prominent Nazis like Heinrich Harrer, who was uh, an S.A. and S.S. man Bruno Beger and the S.S. and so many others um, so it, it's an ambiguous position he finds himself in the Dalai Lama he does not come out very strongly against the Third Reich and it's something that um, I find a little troublesome and at the same time um, we kind of hold people like the Dalai Lama to a higher standard, I think. Um, whether he puts himself in that position or not is, is not quite relevant, because it's obvious he is uh, held up as an icon of virtue, as an icon of spiritual authority. Uh, so it would be nice to have a very definite statement from the Dalai Lama on these issues, but he has not made one. And in the book I've mentioned a couple of times some of the interviews he's had and some of the things that he's said, which are clearly very ambiguous. He, he does not wish to come out strongly on this issue at
0: all. Um, if the notion of Tibetan Buddhism as resonant with fascism and war is startling to listeners, I think they will be at least as shocked uh, to learn that uh, another uh, Buddhist discipline, the Japanese Zen Buddhist discipline had also, uh, in a sense, been weaponized, and two of the prominent names that were associated with that and who also were uh, deeply, have been deeply involved in the dissemination of Zen in the post-World War II period are D.T. Suzuki and uh, Friedrich uh, Graf von Durkheim. And uh, the they both saw resonance between Zen Buddhism and what is called Bushido or the way of the warrior. And by the way, we don't want to be misunderstood as characterizing Zen as fascist or people that have been influenced by Suzuki or Durkan as fascist, such as uh, Alan Watts. That is most emphatically not the case. However, uh, you point out the resonance between Zen, and Bushido, and how that, in turn, was utilized by both uh, Suzuki and Durkheim. I wonder if you would develop that for us. Yes, this is an aspect
1: uh, that I was not uh, prepared for uh, when I came across it. Um, Zen seemed the furthest thing from uh, from this discussion, uh, as you can imagine, as someone uh, who grew up in the 60s. Uh, again, with Alan Watts, whom you just mentioned, but also with the writings of D.T. Suzuki, which uh, were on uh, many bookshelves in those days uh, among those of us who were interested in Zen Buddhism, um, who were interested in, in the writings of Alan Watts and, and this, this uh, and the Zen and you and know, the whole idea of Zen. Um, it was rather shocking to me uh, why I should be shocked at this point in my life, I don't know, but it was uh, to read that uh, D.T. Suzuki was basically uh, a very a prominent uh, pro-nazi a very prominent uh, fascist a Japanese nationalist who saw no problem uh, in reconciling Zen Buddhism with um, uh, the nationalist the Chinese the uh, Japanese nationalist invasion of China uh, and the atrocities committed there uh, Suzuki was a supporter of this he saw in Bushido in the the way of the warrior the Japanese uh, mystique of the warrior which is a very Zen um, uh, uh, position to take as well. He saw in the Japanese way of the warrior uh, the, the sort of manly virtues that uh, you find expressed in the SS in Germany. The idea was that the the way of the warrior was noble. it was an expression of Zen Buddhism. It was an expression of the Japanese spirit. and um, he saw I, I evidently know, no irony in the fact that uh, his form of Buddhism originated in China uh where it was called chan buddhism uh it became zen when it was imported into japan and he found no irony in the fact that uh, japanese soldiers would then be bringing um uh war into the chinese mainland which had been the birth of of this form of buddhism and it's it's, it's incredible to me to read the writings of dt suzuki during this period the period of the late 1930s and the 1940s in which he was uh, praising the role of nazi germany praising uh, their racial purity, uh, their emphasis on racial purity, uh, their emphasis on the state of total war, of uh, bringing an entire country to, to the, the pitch of war. Um, it's, it, it, many listeners who were brought up, you know, on Zen Buddhism will find this impossible to believe, but, but there you have it, his close friend in Tokyo during the, the entire uh, length of the war, was uh, the man you mentioned, Karl Fried Raff von Durkheim. Uh, Karl, Karl Fried Durkheim is another one of those famous authors on Zen Buddhism. He popularized Buddhism. He was a friend of Alan Watts, and as you mentioned, we're not impugning the integrity of Alan Watts in any way. It's very doubtful Alan Watts had a clue about uh, the relations of Suzuki and Durkheim and their relationship to Nazi Germany. But Durkheim, while he was in Tokyo, was actually the head of the Gestapo in Japan, this is outrageous. I mean, um, there's no mention of this in the normal biographies of Durkheim. The, blur- the blurbs in the backs of his books, uh, they've been published uh, in the West. His expositions of, of Zen Buddhism, which were very popular in the 60s, um, photographs of him being taken with, uh, with prominent you know, uh, Buddhists and prominent spiritual leaders. No one would realize that this man was the head of the Nazi secret police in Tokyo uh, for all of Japan, and that he was a close personal friend of D.T. Suzuki, with whom they exchanged much in, uh, material in common. They had many uh, meetings together, they had many discussions on Zen Buddhism, and they were obviously um, two peas in a pot. You had um, this idea that somehow Zen and Nazism uh, was reconcilable. There was a relationship between the two, uh, the glorification of the warrior, the glorification of um, this kind of an extreme form of Buddhism, which involved uh, these sort of ascetic uh, values that uh, both countries uh, embraced, that there was actually a, a place of common ground between Japan and Germany, which was more than just the fact that they were fighting the, quote-unquote, imperialist powers or the colonial powers. Um, Hitler himself might not have found there was very much to, to admire in Japan, um, except that the Japanese were, seemed to be as fixated on race, on race purity and as warfare as he was uh, but there was more to it there was a, uh, a spiritual connection that Durkheim and Suzuki found in each other and in each and in their respective countries approach to world politics to the situation in the world that is un- unbelievable. There's a, a historian um, a very important historian of this period he's controversial to a certain extent except uh, no one's been able to refute his data uh, and that's Brian. Zen, Victoria, who's written a number of articles uh, for the Asia-Pacific Journal uh, and other places, and has written a book, or I think at this point two books, on this idea that um, uh, there was uh, this this strange marriage between uh, Zen Buddhism in, in Japan and the Nazi uh, political ideology in, in Nazi Germany. I would say we talk about the weaponization of religion, and this is really what it comes down to. Uh, this is an integral part of what I've been writing about for, for many years, not just in Hitler Legacy, but in other books uh, over the last 20 years or so, has been the idea that religion can be weaponized. It can be turned into a weapon um, to be used for by one nation against another, by one political group against another group or against another nation. The idea of taking religious sentiments and turning them into um, military and political ideologies. And this is something that was done with to a certain extent with Tibetan Buddhism, uh, especially after the invasion uh, by the Chinese in 1950. It was done certainly with Islam um, beginning at the very beginning of World War One, with the Max von Oppenheim that we've spoken about, the idea that you uh, use Muslims as a kind of proxy uh, army against your enemies by, de- by helping them to declare a jihad or a holy war against the infidel. Uh, Max von Oppenheim and, and the Kaiser's Germany did that in World War I. Uh, Hitler, of course, uh, the Nazi, Nazi Germany did that in World War II. And then the United States did it in, during the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And here we have Zen Buddhism being weaponized as a tool of the state, as a tool of the Japanese state in the 1930s and 1940s. This is um, an incredible turn of events that means that virtually every religion on the face of the earth has been weaponized at one point, uh, used as a, a means of controlling the beliefs of otherwise innocent individuals who think that they have a religious mandate uh, to go out and kill an enemy, or they have a religious, more than a mandate, that they're, they're encouraged to do this, not just given permission to do it, not just given uh, authorization, but that they're actually encouraged uh, to see their enemy in religious terms. And this weaponization has been going on for quite some time, and we see it uh, still today. We are demonizing one religion at the expense of, uh, at the expense of others. We are trying to create, um, religious blocks in order to fight other religious blocks, which are really, uh, uh, proxy wars. These are pawns that are, you know, being manipulated by their respective governments in a very cynical way. We cynically manipulated religion when we came to, to Islam the West did in general, Europe did, and then the United States did. Um, Japan cynically manipulated Buddhism, Buddhism of all religions being cynically manipulated, being weaponized uh, against, in this case, the Chinese first, and then against the rest of uh, Asia by by extension, when the Japanese army then went on the march after the uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor. And then we found the Japanese military everywhere in Asia. This was a weaponization of Zen Buddhism. Uh, weaponization of this idea of the way of the warrior, which then suddenly became the ultimate expression of Buddhism among the Japanese this is there are no words to describe how uh, reprehensible this is and how cynical this kind of manipulation is and I think if people were to stop and think about how they are being manipulated by governments uh, to do their bidding under the guise of religion, they would be horrified and uh, potentially they would have to put down their arms, they would take up their arms against the people who were manipulating them. In the case of uh, of Islam, we can make that case, that they had been cynically manipulated by the West. Of course, things have gotten out of hand now completely, and the West can no longer keep the genie in the bottle, it would seem. But this manipulation has been going on at least since the time of World War I. Um, The powers in Europe manipulated religion for their own ends during the Hundred Years War and to, during many religious wars. We know this. We know that uh, some of the religious wars were merely uh, fronts for wars that were taking place between nations, between uh, cynical political leaders using religion as an excuse. But now, in the present time, the 20th century and the 21st century, we're talking about uh, manipulating religion in a time of advanced technology at the time as weapons of weapons of mass destruction. And this has become something that uh, is a self-fulfilling prophecy, maybe. We're talking about end times. We're talking about apocalyptic confrontation. And we have our religious leaders uh, willingly contributing to this apocalyptic scenario and using religion as, um, as an excuse for enlisting the, the foot soldiers of the faithful in these battles, um, for powers and for special interests and for hidden agendas. And that's something that when I was researching this book and then came across the information on Tibetan Buddhism and then again on uh, D.T. Suzuki and Carl Durkheim, uh, uh, the whole thing became uh, of a piece, and it became quite an astonishing and quite a frightening
0: picture. Uh, <clears throat> the veteran listeners uh, to these broadcasts over the uh, close to... Four decades are certainly familiar with the intelligence community's mind control programs that they implemented over the years. Uh, one of the things that you point out in the Hitler legacy in the context of weaponized religion is that it represents something of an expansion, a form of mass mind control. I wonder if you've developed that for us. Sure. Um, mind control
1: is one of those phrases that. Uh, You know, people react to thinking that this is something uh, outrageous, some strange conspiracy theory. Um, And it's something I'd like, that's an idea I'd like to put to rest quite quickly. We, of course, the United States was very involved in mind control programs uh, since 1950 at least, um, with uh, the famous uh, Operation Bluebird, which began at that time during the the time of the Korean War. The idea being that there's more to uh, warfare, than strictly guns and bullets, that the the minds, the hearts and minds of the people have to be uh, controlled as well. You can win a war without firing a shot if um, if you're able to convert uh, the enemy to your point of view. That's the more benign uh, use of mind control. But in more desperate cases, we have ideas of people who manipulate uh, consciousness itself. I mean, the whole idea of taking A person's religious conviction and turning it into a weapon is a form of mind control. The weaponization of religion that I talk about is is precisely that. We're able to get people to commit murder. We're able to get people to to commit suicide on the basis of these religious ideas that we exacerbate. We take something which might have been a benign spiritual practice and turn it into something which has real-world applications. We take uh, ideas, for instance, of uh, Bushido, we take ideas of the way of the warrior, and we take what should be a, a spiritual identification with um, war against uh, uh, lesser impulses in one's personality, war against uh, gross materialism, let's say, war against uh, the seven deadly sins, uh, that sort of thing. We turn that into war against people, war against a state, war against another way of thinking. We brainwash our, uh, our citizens, our populations, to think that uh, what we're saying is, is spiritually advanced, spiritually correct. We have the, the specter of Japanese committing suicide during the war. We have the kamikaze pilots uh, who are basically just flying bombs into planes. And what is the difference between that and today's uh, image of the suicide bomber? Uh, the idea of it's okay to kill yourself in the name of religion. There's no religion that extols suicide, that even forgives acts of suicide. Killing oneself is not supposed to be the human prerogative. Uh, it's supposed to be something that, uh, in most religions at any rate, something that is determined by God or by some higher spiritual power. And yet somehow, in a lot of religions, it has become... Uh, validated to kill yourself in the name of that religion, as it was in, uh, in Japan with the suicide bombers, uh, the kamikaze pilots, and with suicide bombers again uh, today, the, the phenomenon that we're witnessing. So people don't do this normally, out of a normal reaction. People do this when they've been manipulated, when they've been told that this is the way that they should uh, behave, when they're told that their religion demands this of them. We're able to get people to commit horrendous crimes in the name of religion, probably easier in the name of religion than in the name of politics. Easier in the name of religion than in the name of uh, of corporatism or in the name of capitalism or communism. We're able to have people commit horrendous crimes in the name of God, or in the name of many gods, but in the name of religion at any rate. So we're weaponizing religion, and in order to do that, you have to get involved to a certain extent in a mind control program. I've written about mind control for a long time, is something which is fascinating to me. Um, I realize, looking at the documents that have survived, not many, but have survived from the uh, MKUltra programs and from uh, Bluebird, uh, Artichoke, and the other project, uh, often, and some of the other um, programs that came out of this period, in the military as well as CIA and the intelligence agencies, that the idea that religion was the ideal laboratory uh, for testing all of this, um, it's, it's obvious. They used religion in, uh, in Africa in order to convince uh, certain groups to rise up against other groups. They used religion in Vietnam. They used ideas about uh, superstitions, we might call them, uh, beliefs in spirits, beliefs in uh, monsters and demons and angels, and all of that in order to convince people either to lay down their arms and surrender or to pick up their arms and to kill their fellow human beings. We've done this through deliberate uh, provocations, through deliberate programs of mind control over the last uh, 60, 70 years or so, since the end of World War II. We know that the, the Germans used uh, mind control efforts to a uh, greater or lesser extent. They were experimenting with drugs to alter consciousness. Uh, they were masters of propaganda, what they called worldview warfare, which is to change the entire worldview of someone else. Of course, that involves their religion, as well as any other ideas they may have about capitalism or communism or or any other kind of political issue it's much easier to manipulate the religious feelings of people and get them to do stupid things we can just witness the religious cults that have cropped up in the last thirty forty or fifty years or so we can go and talk about Jonestown we can talk about the Manson family we can talk about a lot of these groups that used which were religious or quasi-religious ideas um... to control their followers and to make them commit murder, we very rarely do we find mind control being used um, to control people to become more charitable or become, uh, you know, kinder to their fellow uh, human beings. We find mind control is being used in a military type capacity, being used to to create uh, scenarios of violence uh, and murder against their fellow human beings. This is what this is all about. Um, it's something that. Is extremely upsetting if you spend any time at all looking at it. It's um, it's a process of molding a person's entire consciousness, changing them. It's a conversion factor. One of the great um, fathers of modern mind control efforts is a man called William Sargent. Uh, he was uh, part of the mind control efforts of the 1950s and 1960s, and he wrote about religious conversion. His focus was the idea of conversion. What does conversion mean? How does it work? How do you convert someone from one religion to another, from one worldview to another? Uh, He was a master at that. He worked for the British government um, doing this in the the same time that we were involved with uh, Operation uh, Bluebird, Artichoke, and all the way to MKUltra, Sargent was involved in doing similar things uh in Great Britain for the uh, the British operations at their bases where they were investigating mind control efforts including hypnosis drugs uh behavior modification of various kinds including torture and interrogation um and he was writing about conversion conversion being you know a very strange psychological uh condition which enabled a person to completely change their point of view on something to completely change their emotional allegiance and in doing so uh, make them capable of committing acts that they would never have dreamed of committing before, because now they were doing it in this new, newly adopted religious context. And that's why I think that um, we make a mistake when we sometimes talk about radicalization. Uh, that's a word we hear a great deal in the press these days when it comes to religion and the wars of religion that we seem to be fighting. We say that a person's become radicalized to me that's a word that doesn't carry very much information i think if we consider these people who we formerly termed radicalized and we say that they've been converted that will give us a much better handle on what's actually taken place uh, a better understanding of what's going on we don't understand that it's a conversion because we see people who had been muslims before in this particular case maybe lukewarm muslims not pious muslims suddenly become fanatics um, they have converted. They have converted to a different religion. Uh, what groups like uh, the Islamic State and some of the others are, are offering is a different religion, as different within Islam as the various uh, Christian denominations are within Christianity. Um, it's a conversion process. You suddenly become a true believer in something, and it's something quite different, and it gives you the, the ability to suddenly find within yourself reservoirs of power and of the ability to commit horrendous crimes that did not exist there before. That conversion process is necessary to take a normal, functioning, average human being and turn them into a killer is conversion. And this is what we see happened with the way of the warrior in Japan, when people suddenly became converted to this idea of of the glory of warfare, how, gloriful, how glor- uh, glorious it was to be a warrior in China and to slaughter uh, civilian populations without without uh, a second thought. Uh, people who were following Hitler and Nazi Germany were converted. If you watch the um, videotapes, the, the movie reels of people attending the Nuremberg rallies and, and some of the other vast meetings that were being conducted, uh, candlelit processions and all of that. You see what's taking place is people being converted to a new religion. The only way Hitler could have done what he did was if he had converted an entire country to his way of thought. These were people who were Christians, for the most part. They were Catholics. They were Lutherans. There were various forms of evangelical, Baptists, and suddenly they became converted to a new religion. And because they were converted, they were able to go out and commit mass murder. Oh, so. This is what all of this means. This is what uh, the weaponization of, of religion means, and this is what um,
0: you know the, the the mind control, brainwashing aspect of all of us. It comes down to conversion. A further a refinement of some of the things that we have spoken about. Something you talk about explicitly in the Hitler legacy, and that you have written of in written about in your other books, and that is Nazism as a spiritual entity or as a cult. I wonder if you would first. Uh, develop that further for us, you've, you've entered onto the topic, and then talk about a couple of fascinating people. One who, I think in many ways, embodies this, and a person who maybe could be said to have touched more bases than Babe Ruth, it's a guy named Miguel Serrano, and another name, you were talking about, Subas. Chandra Bose and Indian slash Hindu adaptations of religion, a weaponized religion, and in conjunction with fascism. That is a woman named Savitri or Savitri Devi. Uh, again, Nazism as a cult, Miguel Serrano and Savitri Devi. Certainly. Um, I've written in
1: uh, my first book, I think, on Holy Alliance, is the first time I've mentioned it, that. Um, Historians of the war tend to focus on the battles, tend to focus on the personalities, on the politics of uh, the Third Reich. Um, I think that they miss a point. They come up short when they're trying to explain what happened in Nazi Germany, how an entire country, the country that gave us Goethe and Wagner and Bach and Beethoven, uh, suddenly was able to turn on a dime and give us Hitler and the death camps how was this possible? Um, And I think it's only possible if you understand that the Nazi party, the way we understand it, was not a political party uh, the way we think of the Democrats and Republicans uh, in this country. The Nazi party was a cult. It was strictly a cult. It had very little to do with politics in the normal way that we think. Uh, There were the bureaucracies of course, the way um, every government has them, but the the raison d'être of the Third Reich, the the, the reason for its being was its cultic uh, characteristic. It was a belief system. It was an entire belief system. It was designed to replace all existing belief systems with which it was at war. Um, Judaism, of course, was the most obvious one, but that was was a a whole uh, separate issue. The Nazi ideology was against any ideology that was not uh, identical to it. So... Christianity was also on the chopping block. Uh, all religions were on the chopping block. Uh, the SS was a pagan cult, the pagan priesthood of the entire Nazi uh, cult itself. The SS were the high priests. They were the racially pure, the ideologically pure, and the ideologically motivated. This is not a political party. Um, this is a political. This is a political movement, you might say, but it was informed by this cult, uh, at whose head was the swastika. Uh, the very uh, very occult symbol, a symbol taken from from Asia, uh, a symbol that's very popular throughout Asia, through India, China, um, all of Southeast Asia. You're going to find the swastika symbol associated with Buddhism, associated with uh, Hindu religions. You're going to find that this was a symbol of tremendous power. What political party would have adopted such a symbol? Uh, what political party would have held those candlelight processions and those Nuremberg rallies and all the rest of it? This was not. A political party by any means nothing like we've seen before it was however a cult and if we understand the Third Reich as a cult state and Hitler as the the leader of the cult as the high priest of the cult everything begins to make much more sense this was a kind of Jonestown uh, which was a cult under Jim Jones this is kind of a Jonestown writ large uh, a Jonestown with uh, a lot of weapons uh, a lot of uniforms and uh, a, a plan for for dominating the world so they replaced christianity judaism uh... there was no islam to speak of in germany at the time very little but they replaced christianity and judaism with a pagan ideology with an idea that was uh... racial as well as it was religious the fathers of germany were the norse gods the teutonic gods The real history of Germany, as far as uh, Germany, as far as the Reich was concerned, was the history of the Teutoburg Forest and the the Teutonic Knights' resistance against Rome, um, resistance against um, uh, the domination of Europe by the Catholic Church. All of this was part of the idea of Germany. Germany as a racially pure uh, kingdom of warriors, just like Japan saw the way of the warrior and Bushido as their as their exemplar of national spirit. So the Nazis saw the Teutonic, uh, its Teutonic origins as being the heart and soul of its people. And the idea was to go back to that, uh, to go back to what was believed to have been lost when Christianity came to Germany. So the whole idea was to replace everything, to replace uh, German culture in general um, with something that was ancient and pagan, and to strip away anything that was considered to be decadent. So, modern art, of course, was decadent. Modern music was decadent. All of that was going to be removed. As much of culture was going to be changed as well under the Reich. This is not the actions of a normal political party. This is the actions of a cult, which wants to make sure there's cult purity among its people. So, Hitler was making determinations as to what was acceptable culturally and what was not. Not just what was acceptable politically, but culture was part of it, religion was part of it. This was an all encompassing uh, movement. This was something that was going to change the entire German state, the entire German people. And, of course, that's what happened. We had an entire country that went into a lockstep or a goose step behind this particular ideology. Uh, They enthusiastically adopted this. There's been a lot of revisionist history uh, that the German people in general were cowed into doing this, that they were forced into doing it, that most Germans didn't realize what was going on. Um, But as research recently in the last uh, 10 years or so, 10 or 15 years, has shown, uh, Germany basically took this on itself wholeheartedly. Germany converted to this new religion. And among some of the converts to this way of thinking were people who didn't even live in Germany, people who were not German at all were falling for this, were being converted to this, this new religion. Uh, one of them that uh, you mentioned was Miguel Serrano. Miguel Serrano is a very interesting person. Uh, I became aware of Serrano the way I think many um, people in the United States did through a couple of books that were innocuous enough uh, that were published in the United States that were reviewed in places like the New York Times. Um, One was a a book called Jung and Hess, A Record of Two Friendships, because Miguel Serrano did personally know uh, Carl Gustav Jung, the famous Swiss psychiatrist, as well as know Hermann Hess, the very famous German novelist. Um, so he he wrote a book called Young and Hess, A Record of Two Friendships. And he wrote another uh, called El Eya, A Book of Magic Love, uh, which came out after the uh, Young and Hess book. And that was uh, pretty well known, again, reviewed in uh, the Times, uh, published by Harper and Rowe uh, in the United States. And uh, that's how I knew Miguel Serrano until 1979, when I went to Chile uh, to investigate Colonia Dignidad. Uh, the whole story I think we mentioned of how I was detained there in Chile at the time and realizing before that event took place while I was in Chile that there were whole sections of bookshelves in Santiago, Chile, the capital uh, of, of books by Miguel Serrano and I knew the name and I, I was curious and I see books that are called for instance, uh, one of them is El Cordon Dorado Hitlerismo Esoterico Esoteric Hitlerism and I thought, what? And then a, a, something called The Book of the Resurrection, another book called The Resurrection of the Hero, and on and on. Suddenly I realized that Miguel Serrano was a, an unapologetic Nazi. He was someone who um, was a devotee of Hitler, who saw Hitler as an avatar, Hitler as the incarnation of a god, just the way that, uh, as you mentioned, Subhas Chandra Bose saw Hitler the same way. Uh, Subhash Chandra Bose was the leader of an Indian nationalist movement. He wanted to get rid of the British in India. Uh, and he looked towards Hitler as being uh, the savior. He looked towards Hitler as being the man who was going to bring um, liberty to the Indian people, throw out the British, because Hitler obviously was at war with Great Britain. Uh, but it wasn't only that. It was the fact that Hitler had adopted the swastika. It was the fact that Hitler was in favor of racial purity. And all these other things that appealed to the Indian nationalist movement at the time. So we see uh, a kind of pan-German or a uh, pan-Nazi movement starting to take shape. Miguel Serrano was a native of Chile, born and raised in Chile. He joined the Nazi Party in the 1930s. Uh, We have his records. Uh, He's on the lists of uh, Nazi Party members at that time. He was a devoted Nazi his entire life. He served as an ambassador of Chile uh, to countries like Austria. Yugoslavia and India in the latter capacity he met the Dalai Lama and befriended the Dalai Lama we have photographs of Miguel Serrano with the Dalai Lama multiple times uh, Serrano saw the Dalai Lama and Tibetan uh, Buddhism uh, part of the, the missing uh, key to the, the, the mysteries the idea that uh, the Nazi movement itself had tentacles you might say stretching into Tibet stretching into India that the religions of Tibet and of India uh, were completely consistent with the Nazi ideology. His books on esoteric Hitlerism and some of the other books that he's written talk very glowingly about Asian religions, uh, talking about Hitler as the avatar of Kalki, of the the god who would come out of Shambhala and cleanse the world, someone who would come out the end of the Kali Yuga, the uh, the cycle we're living in now, and prepare the world, purify it of its dross, purify it of its evil. Miguel Serrano is one of these firm believers in this, Serrano served um, as ambassador of Chile to these various countries until the takeover uh, of the presidency by Salvador Allende in 1970. Allende, of course, was the, the socialist president who was elected in Chile. Uh, Allende didn't last more than three years before, of course, uh, there was a military coup, uh, and he died uh, on September 11, 1973, uh, at which time Serrano came back into his own again. Uh, the Nazi underground um, was very much part of, of Serrano's milieu. Serrano was very involved with uh, Colonia Dignidad, the place in the Andes Mountains where I was uh, detained briefly. He wrote about the colony in glowing terms, saying it was the beginning of a new kind of Nazi Shambhala, which is extremely important because Shambhala, of course, is the mystical kingdom referenced in the Kalachakra Tantra of Tibet. Shambhala is also the place from which the Kalki would uh, proceed at the end of the world, at the end times, and cleanse the world. To Serrano, the, the colony, Colonia Dignidad, was that place. The Andes Mountains were the new Himalayas, and uh, all of his Nazi brothers and sisters uh, were part of this new movement in South America. He performed the funeral in Santiago for Walter Ralph. Uh, Walter Ralph lived out the rest of his days in Santiago in Chile. Ralph was the man who invented the gas chambers. He was the man who invented the mobile gas van, which was a means of um, executing as many people as possible by shoving them into the back of a van and running a pipe from the exhaust into the van. You drive around for a while until the people are dead. Uh, you empty the van and you bring in a new batch of victims. This is what Walter Ralph invented. Walter Ralph was an extreme supporter of the final solution. He was in North Africa with Rommel, Uh, When Rommel would go through a a town or a village with his army, Roth would follow, looking for Jews to execute or to send to the camps. Roth was a a war criminal, and he managed to escape being prosecuted for his crimes, and he wound up living peacefully to the end of his days in Chile as a friend of Miguel Serrano. Uh, People like Eric Priebke, um, uh, another war criminal, Franz Stangl, another war criminal, Klaus Barbie, all of these people at one time or another wound up at the colony, this new Shambhala in the Andes Mountains. These were people who were friends of Miguel Serrano. And in the book, The Hitler Legacy, we discover that Miguel Serrano's uh, contact information is there in the Hans Ulrich Rudel address book uh, as part of the Odessa, as part of the underground. This is a man who has his photograph taken with the Dalai Lama. He died a few years ago, but uh, he was active in Tibetan independence uh, movements. He was a writer who wrote... uh, extensively on Tibetan religion on Asian religion and how um, the Asian religion and the the Nordic religions were uh, virtually mirror images of each other and how the Hitler was that was the centerpiece of all of this that Hitler was still um, perhaps still alive somewhere on the planet uh perhaps in a spiritual form and uh controlling or inspiring his devotees you mentioned Savitri Devi Savitri Devi was a woman of um, European ancestry. Uh, Her name was an adopted name. She spent a great deal of time in India where she converted to the Hindu religion uh, to a certain extent and became a fanatic follower of Hitler. Savitri Devi was another person who saw in Asian religion and in the Nazi party some points of uh, tangents. She saw that uh, if... uh, Hitler was able to have crossed the Suez Canal and go into Central Asia. She was uh, welcoming Hitler with open arms into India. She was a friend of Subhas Chandra Bose, uh, the Indian nationalist leader, and of other extreme nationalist leaders in India. She wrote extensively uh, about her ideology, which was a mixture of Nazi ideology and uh, Hindu religious concepts and theories. She was a uh, active member in the underground, in the uh, in what I call Odessa, in the the Nazi underground after the war. She was very involved in uh, people with people like Hansel Rudel, with Miguel Serrano, and all of the others. She was part of the ideology of the what you might call the Fourth Reich, or the the continuation of the Third Reich by other means. She was part of that ideological movement, along with Miguel Serrano, and along with people like Bruno Beger, and Heinrich Harrer who saw in this religious movement in Asia something that had uh, that smacked of Nazism that smacked of this particular movement um, and who were not being discouraged in this by the Dalai Lama I have to emphasize Um, Serrano, Beger, Harrer were all uh, kept they all maintained relationships with with the Dalai Lama until their their deaths Um, there was no uh, holding them at arm's length, uh, by the Dalai Lama. So there was something going on. There was some point of connection between this Nazi ideology, between Nazi personalities, um, unrepentant Nazis. I have to emphasize, people like Harrer did not repent of what they had done or who they were. They simply wanted to disguise it or deny it ever happened, but they didn't repent of it. Uh, Beger did not repent of what he had done. He had, he saw nothing wrong what he had done, uh, as far as his war crimes were concerned. Miguel Serrano saw nothing uh, to be ashamed of. Serrano being very active in the underground to make sure that these people escaped, that they had a place to run to, they had a safe house at the at the colony uh, in the Andes. These are people who believed, who were still true believers to the end of their days, who at the same time held up the Dalai Lama, held up Tibetan Buddhism, uh, held up, in some cases, Hin- Indian religion in general, Hinduism, what we call Hinduism, held that up as a as a fellow traveler to their own ideology, who saw the points of connection between what they believed and what these particular Asian forms of religion believed. So we're in very, very dangerous ground when we speak of people like Miguel Serrano, Savitri Devi, Heinrich Herrera, Bruno Beger. We're talking about also D.T. Suzuki and and Karl Fried, uh, Graf von Durkheim. We're talking about people who saw in this religion uh, the possibilities of world domination, the possibilities of the destruction of other races, of cleansing the world of evil, which could have meant anything from communism to Judaism and Christianity. So this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the weaponization of religion and we're talking about mind control. Um, These are people who were unabashed uh, controllers of people's minds who wanted to <clears throat> write books that were going to control people's attitudes toward, towards religion, towards politics uh, if I go to South America today and I have been over the last 20 uh, odd years or so on and off, you will find a lot of admiration for Hitler in circles that should know better uh, you'll find admiration for the Nazi party, you find a lot of apologies being made for Hitler people saying, well yes, but he was a genius which is a a conversation I've had so many times people telling me that Hitler was a genius that he might have been crazed he might have made some mistakes but he was brilliant and he had the right idea Um, you have nascent Nazi parties in all of these countries you have them throughout South America you have now uh, Nazi uh, sympathies uh, rising in countries in uh, Southeast Asia you have uh, Nazism as as artistic kitsch Uh, you have Nazi themed restaurants in Asia now Um, with swastikas and photographs of Hitler. So, the horror that we feel in the West when we see a swastika, we hear of the death camps, in countries where this did not happen, in countries that were not touched by it, there's a different attitude. And there's an attitude of admiration, there's an attitude of emulation, um, and there's even this mystical core of people who are drawn to New Age ideas in South America and in Southeast Asia. Who are seeing in the Nazi phenomenon something really, for what one of a better word, something really cool, something really interesting, something that uh, you know Spielberg uh, did in uh, the Indiana Jones movies? They're seeing something like uh, real-life Darth Vader, and yet they're identifying with Darth Vader, uh, you know, as opposed to identifying with uh, the people who fought against him. So it's a very, very strange construct we're seeing. We're seeing people living uh, in dispossessed uh, countries, people feeling dispossessed, people feeling disenfranchised, looking towards this ideology as something that is salvific, something that may save them, something that may give them power in the future.
0: Peter, we are almost out of time. Where can people find out more about this and the Hitler legacy?
1: You can certainly uh, go to my website, which is uh, peterlavenda.com. Dot com. You'll find more information there. The book, of course, can be ordered through the usual places, Amazon, and through Barnes and Noble. Um, if anybody has any difficulty, you can reach uh, me or the publishers at on my website, and we'll be happy
0: to help. Uh, And again, that there is nothing more important that people could do than to buy the book and read it. I have no financial dog in this fight, so to speak. Uh, We will develop this further in our interviews to come. This concludes, for the record, program number 843, interview number 6 with Peter LaVenda about the Hitler legacy. This is being recorded on April 12th of the year 2015. For Peter LaVenda, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.